podcast, cutting edge conversations with the quant community. Well, hello everybody and welcome to a new quantcast. Today here with us, uh, Nazneen Sharif. Hi everyone. And myself, Mauro Cesar, we have Richard Martin, who is principal at Apollo Global Management in London. Hi Richard, and thanks for being here with us. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks very much for having me along. Um, so, Richard, um, I want to introduce you by uh, simply saying uh, that you are uh, a pretty special guest to risk uh, because you are the one who has published the most in risk over the past 20 years or so. You have published exactly 20 papers, which is about one, one, per, uh, one per year. And um, not only that, you are also well known to our readership because you have been awarded very early on in your career, uh, Quant of the Year in 2002, for your um, for your papers on Southern Point methods applied to credit portfolios. And uh, you're here today to speak about your 21st paper, uh, which is going to uh, appear in risk uh, in the July issue. And it's on corporate bonds in emerging markets, and uh, you worked on it with Tolga Uzuner and Yao Ma. Now, could you tell us why... Um, the market of corporate bonds in emerging market is growing and uh, what can uh, quantitative analysis do to help in that space? Sure, it's a question of more buyers and more sellers at the end of the day, like, like many things in uh, finance. Uh, in the last 10 years, we've seen really good improvements in corporate balance sheets in so-called emerging market countries. Uh, and the asset class really looks much different than it did even seven or eight years ago today. So there are more issuers that are strong enough to issue uh, on the global debt markets in hard currency. Then on the other side, uh, since the end of the financial crisis, low interest rates have meant that there's been a demand for rated yield. And so we have seen increasing amounts of inflows into the asset class, and that's steadily driven yields down until comparatively recently. So we're seeing the corporates come to markets, even high yield corporates are now coming to market with, with new deals that are of um, in some, in some cases, peripheral interest. Um, but we also see a big chunk of investment grade issuers uh, who weren't really in the market 10, 15 years ago. So the paper that you're publishing soon uh, with risk that um, is on modeling the risk around um, emerging market corporate bonds. Uh, so you know, what um, exactly are you modeling in this paper? Could you describe that for us, please? Yes, we want to address a fairly fundamental question, which is, yeah. Where should a given corporate trade? Uh, we don't necessarily need to worry about marking particular bonds to market because we have enough pricing information on where they currently trade. But the question that interests me as somebody who takes risk in that market is, should I be buying or selling this particular bond at this particular point in time? So how much should I be paid for taking corporate risk? And in emerging markets, you essentially have two ingredients. So say it's a Brazilian food company, uh, you have what you might call global food risk, but you also have the Brazil component. So there are two components in one package, which means it's going to trade at some extra yield, and that's what makes it desirable. That's why people are interested in buying this kind of stuff. But how should those be combined? Should we simply take Brazil risk and food risk and just add the two together, and that will give us a spread? Um, or should we be trying to do something um, a bit more, a bit more um, sophisticated than that? Now, if we were to take the market opinion of, let's say, it's double B plus um, food, beverage, tobacco issuers, uh, we could get that from developed markets simply by stripping the uh, bond or CDS curves from issues in developed markets. And there would be a, you know, maybe 100 names to go at. 
So we will be able to get reasonably sensible looking curves for yeah. different credit ratings of different maturities. But if we were to look at specifically food in Brazil, there will be very few issuers, maybe three or four. And each one would have issued maybe two or three bonds, but that's not really enough for us to get a decent data set. And if I took right. another uh, pairing, for example, uh, retail in Chile, for example, offhand I can only think of one Chilean retailer, which is Falabella. So uh, in that case, building a whole set of curves is impossible. I only have, have one data point. So what I want to do is to take uh, Brazil risk. Now I know how Brazil risk trades from the government cash and CDS curves. And I know how food risk is priced in the developed markets. So can I just add the two spreads together? Well, that would be the simplest possible model. And it probably wouldn't justify a paper in Risk Magazine. But also it doesn't yeah. work. Um, because by the time you add those two spreads together, you get, uh, you get a hurdle that is so high that you would never buy any emerging market corporate bonds. As a specific example, you get in other sectors, you get names that actually trade tighter than the sovereign or at least comparably with the sovereign. So in the past, we've seen higher rated firms than Brazil trade through the Brazil curve. For example, Clubine, a paper company, uh, has, um, it has cash flows that are not in Brazilian uh, real. Um, so it, has, it doesn't have a lot of the problems that the Brazil government itself does. Right. Uh, and it was often rated higher. It's actually been downgraded recently. But uh, in the past, it's, 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 it's traded as a triple B minus name, was rated triple B minus. So a simple method of adding two spreads together can't possibly give us the right answer in that case, because we would necessarily have all corporates trading very much wider than the sovereign, and, that, that, and that's not the case. So we have to dig a little bit deeper into trying to understand uh, the fundamental nature of the credit risk and to see how we can model that. And to do that, I've used the structural model, famous Merton model, which has been around for about 40 years now in, in various forms. Uh, I've done quite a lot of research on this in the last 10, 15 years. And one thing that you can get the Merton model to do is generate sensible shapes of CDS curve or, or bond spread curve, provided that certain ingredients are there, which, which we can go into a bit later. So we can do that for the corporate, we can do it for the country, and then we yeah. can treat the corporate bond as a sort of first default, but it has to be modified. So the corporate can fall over if something goes wrong with its sector or something goes wrong idiosyncratically with the firm, but also there's a country effect that if something bad happens to the country, that's also likely to cause it to come under pressure. It may have difficulty accessing debt markets uh, and it's possibly it may become insolvent as a result. So that's, that's yeah. how the, the country effect is. But it's not necessarily a case, the case that the country getting into trouble will actually cause a corporate default. That, that won't always be the case. So what we do is find a way of modifying this first to default. So that's why in the paper it's called MFTD, it's modified first to default. So that the country has to get itself into a, uh, into a worse state uh, than what you might describe as normal uh, for the corporate to default. So let's just think about how we would set up such a model. The, the basic way that Merton models operate today is their credit barrier models. So you model the assets of the firm uh, as some kind of stochastic process and there is a barrier and the barrier represents how much debt the firm has uh, and although it's not actually at the firm's debt level it's related to it and when the firm value hits that barrier then default is, is uh, then default occurs now to make models like that work you can't just use a diffusion hitting a barrier you get the wrong kind of um, you get you get a diff you get a, a cds curve or a bond spread curve uh, that is basically the wrong shape so 
to make these models work, you have to incorporate jumps. Uh, there are possible other avenues such as stochastic volatility or, or potentially rough volatility, but I don't think either of those is likely to really work. Uh, it's, it's unavoidable, in my view, uh, that, that you have to have jumps in the, the model. And these have to be downward jumps. There's no real way of calibrating upward jumps. Suddenly, improvements in, in a firm is not the sort of thing that a CDS or, or a bond is capable of pricing. Yeah. So if you, have, um, if you have down jumps in the model, you can then make the short-term spread, which is something that, that you do see in the markets. Uh, I'm talking about the two- or three-year spread, that sort of point on the curve. Uh, you can make that match with uh, typical bonds or, or occasionally CDS. We don't really get much CDS trading in, uh, in emerging market corporates. So you can calibrate the curve from that. You can do the same for the country. So you can do standalone risk and the uh, standalone risk of the corporate, and you can also do uh, the country and calibrate two models for that. So calibration in context means deciding what volatility and what jump parameter I need um, to get the the model to calibrate. The the higher the the jump intensity or the higher the volatility, the wider the CDS will be. So so that tells us how the market is is um, pricing credits in the country or the corporate. And then I have to combine those two. So what I do, because I, don't, I want to lessen the country effects, I don't want to say that the default of the country is going to cause default of the corporate, I'm actually going to move the barrier for the country further away. And then I'll have a regular first default so that if either barrier hitting occurs, then, then the default occurs. But by having yeah. moved the barrier downwards or further away from the country, it means that the country will have to get itself into a worse state to cause uh, towards the corporate's default. So that means that the country itself might default, but this modified first default won't necessarily trigger. And by doing so, I get a reasonably sensible shape of CDS curve. I see. Uh, you use first default type formulation. Um, what are the drawbacks uh, with that formulation to assess the risk of emerging market hard currency bonds? I think the drawbacks of the current model are that it's not analytically tractable and there is model risk. Uh, the analytical tractability means that I've resorted to Monte Carlo simulation, though there are other techniques that could be used. You could set up a grid or something like that and, and calculate it that way. The model risk means that there are different models that will, 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 will give you different answers. Um, on the other hand, we found that different formulations give rather similar answers, so we think the model risk is actually not, is, is actually not excessive in this, partly because you're calibrating to uh, corporate spreads and you're calibrating to the country spreads so different calibrations will still agree on how they're pricing the the CDS because that's what you're calibrating to the fact that you get different models with different parameters is not necessarily a problem um, so at the moment the model is a little bit bulky uh, to to calculate it's not something that you can get an answer in a, in a matter of microseconds um, but I think with computers getting faster and computation techniques improving I think that's not necessarily too much of a problem. I think I prefer to have uh, a slightly more complicated model that is intuitively reasonable and makes economic sense um, rather than one that's analytically very simple but just fundamentally generates the wrong kind of results. Okay, so um, so y you mentioned before that what you do is modify that first to default type formulation uh, to model the risk in your paper, um, and you also mentioned that um, you know the, the the barrier associated with country risk that you sort of move it away so that you know you need to have a much worse um, you know risk um, associated with sovereign risk to move that um, co corporate default probability. Yeah. Um, so. Um, 
you know, how exactly are you doing that? And would the modification, um, I mean, does it have any limitations? Well, it's, it's always hard to say whether a model works or not in this in this case. Uh, at some basic level, it has to generate sensible shapes of, shapes of CDS curve. It can't really do anything yeah. too silly from that perspective. Whether, if you're going to use it for trading, uh, whether a corporate will trade in line with, with what your model says uh, is difficult to say. In fact, in some Turkish corporates, we're seeing that there is some divergence. We've seen names like Archelek, for example, which makes fridges. Uh, and was recently a triple B minus name. Yeah. The spreads that's really blown out recently, and it it looks cheap. And the model says it's cheap. It's basically because it doesn't have full turkey risk. Yeah. Uh, if you want to use that as a term, um, it it should be like a consumer products firm with a small amount of turkey risk. And that that's the, the basic way this formulation occurs. So, at the moment, with the spread having increased quite a lot. Recently, with Turkey itself having gone a lot wider, the model shows it has value. Whether or not that value is actually realised or not, if we see the spread start to tighten, then then that will show that, that fundamentally what's what the model is saying uh, was right. But on the other hand, should it default, which we don't think it is going to, and then we could say, well, there's potentially something wrong with the model. That suggests that there would actually be a much stronger coupling of the country to the firm. Now, in this case, we actually don't think that there is is that much. Um, a coupling simply because, at least I don't want to get, get into uh, details of um, fundamental discussions of particular credits, but in that case, a lot of its revenues are in euros. So yeah. it doesn't have a lot of EM risk as such. And if it were trading, if it were not in Turkey, if it were in Italy or France or somewhere like that, then it would probably trade at a much, much tighter spread. So there aren't specific Turkey issues, uh, at least as far as the model says, and, and, and our, our view is actually we, we regard this pretty much as a triple B minus or double B plus type credit. But at the moment it is being paid quite a lot more risk, so, um, so we're incorporating that into our por portfolios and our portfolio models. Okay. Um, how, how do firms um, usually model this? Do they use a simple uh, first to default structure? No, the first default idea is completely new. Yeah. Uh, the way that it's currently done is that you typically take the spread curve or the yield to worst for bonds yeah. in that sector. So if you're okay. dealing with Brazilian food, we would take all the Brazilian food bonds. And then we would probably take other South American food producers, but we'd have to adjust by the country because Chilean food producer and a Brazilian one are going to trade, trade a lot differently because Chile is a much tighter credit than Brazil. So some adjustment has to be done. It's not clear exactly how you would do that. Right. Um, but that's loosely how it's done. You would, sort of, you would kind of sketch curves on a graph of spread versus maturity, and you would arrange the bonds on that and say, well, this appears to show value and this one appears not to show value. Uh, and that's how, uh, that's how typical sell-side strategists would think about it, also how buy-side investors would, would tend to, to think about things. Not surprisingly, they have to be speaking the same language, otherwise nobody would read sell-side research. Yeah. Uh, you say in your paper that modeling the risk associated with emerging markets, uh, corporate bonds, uh, using the full-time probability seems like mathematical trickery. So you don't use them. Um, why is it so? Uh, is it com are they commonly used as uh, in the industry at the moment? Well, we're talking about the whole copulous thing, aren't we? And this is a subject that's got a bad name, uh, and I think deservedly so. I think the whole copular approach, which was very popular 15 years ago, if you went to credit conferences in 2005, everybody was going on about copulas. Really, copulas have done very little 
to help the structured credit market or indeed think about correlation generally, uh, in my view. What they've done actually is to submerge the basic problem. It, it's, it's convenient just to go back and try and think in, in terms of um, default correlation. Now, how does default correlation arise? Really, the way to think about this is that in some years, no firms default in a particular sector. Or let's, let's take triple B corporates. So in some years, there are virtually no defaults, maybe even 40% of the time. Uh, and maybe one year in 10, things are fairly bad. So the default rate is twice the, uh, twice the average. And maybe one year in 100, it's 20 times the average or something like that. So you get this clustering, and that's really what default correlation basically is. So when we talk about realized default correlation, what we mean is patches of defaults. So it's easy to write down models that explicitly address this. In fact, as I've just suggested, that you know, one, year, one year in 10, it's like this. One year in 50, it's like this. One year in, it's, it's 100, uh, one year in 100, it's, it's the other. And you can then calculate everything that you need to calculate. So you can calculate correlations should you want them. But importantly, you can actually say in any portfolio quite directly, what is the probability of large losses occurring? Now let's map that onto how does how a CDO works. Certain aspects of that model are going to be are going to impinge directly on the CDO tranches. So, for example, if I'm pricing a super senior, it's the worst states of the world that that, that directly specify what the spread of that super senior tranche will be, because the good states don't affect it. it doesn't really matter whether the default rate is average or slightly below average or slightly above average. Uh, there aren't going to be any losses hitting the super senior tranche. But it's the worst ones that are. So, if I take the if I take the uh, probability and the severity of my worst states, the ones that are actually going to hit the tranche, then that will tell me directly what the spread of that tranche will be. As soon as I bring a copula into this, all I've done is to wrap up that problem, and actually make it more opaque. Now it looks as though I've actually made the modelling easier because in the model that I've just described, you have to estimate quite a lot of parameters. You, you could come up with different models that will say different things about default. Well, guess what? That is what the nature of the problem is. By simply plugging a copula in there, all I do is turn the problem from parameterizing a simple model to plugging in the right sort of copula. So then this addresses or raises the question, uh, what, what is the right copula to use? How many copulas are there? Well, sadly, the answer to that question is uncountably many. And how do you know which one to use? Well, really, you don't. Now, some types of copula are easily more more easily suited to understanding the problem than others. I think the Archimedean ones are actually not too bad from that perspective. But really just going back to basics and, and coming up with um, with simple transparent models uh, is, a lot, is a lot healthier way of, of understanding um, what models say. From the perspective of risk management, if I have a portfolio of corporate bonds or mortgages or something like that, if I have a model that says our assumptions are that one year in 100 mortgage default rates are going to be 10 times the average, that's simple and transparent. If I think that the probability of default rates being 10 times the average is a one in a trillion event, if that's what my model says, and something like a Gaussian model might well say that because of the shape of the Gaussian distribution, yeah. then very clearly something is quite badly wrong. So I want to be quite transparent about what my models say about really bad events. I should be able to extract those very easily from the model without having to go through a large amount of algebraic manipulation. Uh, so I think simple transparent models basically do the job in a way that copulas do not. Now in the same, same way here, I could attempt to model a first default by um, sort of gluing together two default times. But in doing so, which copulas should I use? 
And am I actually addressing the fundamental, fundamental mechanism that causes default? No, I don't think so. Whereas a structural model clearly does. Uh, defaults cause, uh, are caused by accidents occurring at firms. Accidents occurring at firms mean the firm value goes down. Uh, I can't get away from the fact that there are down jumps. If I look at emerging market high yield credits, or in fact even any other type of, of credit, I see jumps occurring in the spread. Those, of course, have to occur from jumps in the underlying model. So if I want to address correlation, uh, the obvious way to do it is to say, notionally, how I have some sort of firm value for the country, although I can't directly measure that, and I have a firm value for the corporate, which I do. I want to say those are correlated. Well, why, not, why don't we just write them as a correlated part and an uncorrelated or idiosyncratic part, uh, and then try and calibrate the parameters so that we, we have something that matches the market. And if I do that, I have something that, uh, although it's difficult to do the computations, and I, I need to use Monte Carlo simulation, I do at least have something that makes sense at a fundamental level. Have uh, firms um, moved completely away from copula models, or you know, or have they just moved away from simple ones like you know Gaussian copula, uh, or you know, are they exploring other alternatives that are out there? That's really a question for a structured credit guy. I used yeah. to do this kind of thing 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, I don't do it anymore. Yeah. Uh, there are new CLO deals being done. There, yeah. is the, there is the occasional synthetic CDO being done here and, here and there, but it's not like 2005. So really, there isn't that much new modeling as far as I can make out. Uh, and in as much as there is any modeling needed to be done, it's so that you just mark your current set of positions as they slowly roll off. Um, now, that doesn't mean to say that in 10 years' time, all the CDOs and CLOs will have rolled off and there won't be any more, because, because there, are, there are new deals being done. But there isn't really the demand for, uh, for models in the same way that there used to be. And I think people are prepared to use fairly simple models and to make modifications to them rather than needing another uh, whole other tranche of... Um, modeling to, to deal with them. Okay. Yeah. Well, leaving your corporate bonds paper uh, for a minute, um, I'd like to ask you something about your past research. So you have done extensive research in the past on uh, risk measures and uh, not just on uh, expected shortfall valued risk, but you explored alternative measures like uh, spectrum measures, expect us, for example. Uh, what applications do you see for these alternative risk measures? And uh, do you use them yourself in your daily job? The central conclusion of the Expectiles paper was that they don't really do anything more than shortfall. So as far as I'm concerned, I just want a way of measuring risk that is sensitive to bad events. So I don't really want to be using standard deviation, though it gives me some idea of common moves, uh, but also stress losses. So the combination of those three really does everything that I need. I think Expectiles don't really add anything to the picture, but really Fiddling around with risk measures is not going to make us better risk managers. Ultimately, if your model attaches, and this goes back to the point I was making earlier, a really small probability to a bad event, let's say that it's corporate bonds, the probability of defaults being 10 times their average, let's say that that came out as 1 in 10,000 or something like that on a one-year horizon, clearly something we know to be wrong, it doesn't really matter having constructed the distribution of your P&L or the distribution of your losses, it doesn't really matter what um, risk measure you use, you're always going to end up with something silly. So you can use VAR, you can use shortfall, you can use expectars. If your model actually does not have it in there that bad things can happen, you are going to make bad investment decisions. 
Contrarily, if you do have a sensible probability in that, let's say it's a 1 in 20 year event that that's, uh, the default rates are that high, then probably it doesn't really matter too much which risk measure you use, they're all going to tell you pretty much the same thing. So really the way that risk management needs to go is transparency around uh, transparency around bad events and the probabilities of bad events and the severity of bad events, which does make it subjective. So the risk management is an art, not a science brigade will doubtless be saying, ah, yes, well, we've told you this for some time. And you know what? They're right, that, that there is a certain amount of subjectivity and risk management uh, is not just about coming up with econometric models and, uh, and, and sets of equations for things. You really need to address fundamentally what your models are saying about, about bad events and given any model, you should be able to say, like, what is the probability of something bad happening? What is the model saying? Do I believe this? And if you don't, then you probably need to alter the model. That's interesting. Um, another topic that um, has become quite popular recently is uh, machine learning. Um, and it's been used quite a lot um, in the buy side, especially for optimal execution, uh, development of trading strategies. Um, so what are your thoughts on the usefulness of this technique? Do you think its application in um, different areas of financial modeling would increase in the future? Well, it's certainly a hot topic. In my area, I don't see many applications of it, though potentially there are a few if you wanted to build a rating model that, that were to summarize what, for example, Moody's or S&P uh, do with, with their ratings. So if I just take balance sheet information, uh, going back historically, so I, I take the last five years of balance sheet information and particularly the current balance sheet, and I look at such measures as free cash flow, uh, debt to EBITDA and so on, all the things that debt analysts normally look at. And I just want to build a box that replicates what rating agencies do. Um, would that work? Could I train a, I could dress this up and call it a neural network or just some mathematical formula. It's basically all it boils down to. Could I construct a mathematical formula that does that? Well, I've actually done that in the past and the answer is yes. Um, I could then dress that up and call that machine learning if I want, but it's not quite clear what the machines actually learned. It's just been shown that if these are the inputs, this is what the output is. And that's what neural networks have done for the last 30 years, and fair enough. Whether that constitutes some great advance in financial modelling or not, I think it's pretty unlikely. Um, on the matter of of optimal execution, everything I do is just traded over the Bloomberg chat. Um, so from the perspective of, for example, managed futures or exchange-traded products, it, this looks like the Stone Age. This is the way it was done. 30 years ago or, or something like yeah. that. So I don't really have a great deal to say about optimal execution, though anecdotally what I've heard is that anything that a machine comes out with, comes up with is like to be arbed out fairly quickly. So that if you spend a lot of time constructing so-called optimal execution routines, well, they have unknown parameters in them. Uh, by the time you've estimated what those should be, probably somebody else has done it just, just as effectively. And also simple common sense ways of executing trades within a certain time are probably unlikely to do significant, uh, significantly worse than um, what, what some fancy uh, machine algorithms like to do for you. As regards machines predicting financial markets, this is a thorny one. Doubtless there are many people at CTA funds uh, who say that they've come up with great new uh, machine learning capabilities. I would um, I'd be pretty suspicious about that. I think it's very easy to come up with conclusions that depend very specifically on what data you've used to, trade the, to, to train the machine in the first place. So for example, if you were to give an equity trading 
uh, strategy or, or black box data since 2009 and say, well, what's the best way of trading equities? It will say, say buy the dips. Yeah. Because equities have gone straight up, and if they ever yeah. go down, then it's just time to back up the truck and buy some more. On the other hand, if you gave it data between 2007 and 2009, it will tell you not to touch the asset class of the barge pole. Now, which data are you going to train on, and how far are you going to go back in time? So there is a subjectivity about that, which I think is not, which is not really taken into account pro uh, properly. And I suspect that a lot of systematic trading algorithms actually end up picking up the um, picking up the psychological biases and all the subjective inputs uh, and prejudices of the researchers who program them. That's probably a slightly controversial view, but uh, but fine, that is my view. So uh, when you mentioned that the trading strategies that a machine learning algorithm could come up with could get arbed out, you know, by the time it you know spits out the results, certainly in trading execution, yes, because everything's yeah. very fast. So yeah. it's, it's yeah. like um, ev evolution not occurring on timescales of one hundred thousand years or something. Instead, yeah. uh, one hundred thousand microseconds or something. Yeah. So yes, it's likely that that is the case. Also, with these strategies, which I think makes them a little bit unsatisfactory for anybody who wants to. To, to go and do them, really the winner takes all. So you can come up with quite a good strategy and simply make yeah. no money out of it. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're doing something like, um, so you're investing in, in sort of asset class, I mean, there yeah. are not that many people looking at fundamentally M credit, for example. So if you have yeah. some new insight, well, you're maybe only, only you're, you're perhaps the third or fourth person looking at that particular um, bit of the asset class. So possibly you can come up with some, some new insight. Yeah. A machine working out how to trade government bond futures? Mm, not so sure. Yep. Is that because um, there might be many other institutions using similar algorithms? Yeah, like everybody's machine basically learning doing the same thing. The same and thing, actually, yeah. although there are some theoretical papers on machine learning uh, and optimal trade execution, really they're all kind of doing the same thing. And you have parameters to be estimated, so there is some uncertainty in those. And really what they end up doing is, 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 is common sense that's, that's been dressed up a bit as far as I can make out. Yeah. So if one institution can do that faster just by throwing more technology at the problem, would that benefit benefit them? I think it would potentially benefit them for a short period of time. But I think yeah. that that knowledge might be short-lived. Okay, that's interesting. It's interesting to hear the view of someone doesn't share the excitement about machine learning as it seems to be widespread in the market right I'm now. I'm not quite sure what I'm not quite sure what the machines actually learn. That's uh, right. that, okay. that, that's my problem with it, yeah. Um to conclude, I would like to um, have a look at the future. So, uh, what are your next projects in terms of research? I've been working for a few years on new methods for solving Fokker-Planck equations. So, these are quite fundamental in physics and also in finance. Uh, and I have new approximate techniques uh, for solving those numerically, so the combination of analytical and, and numerical ideas. So, you might think, well, the Fokker-Planck equation, I mean, this can be done on a, on a binomial tree or something like that. Um, what I'm looking for is something that's fast, intuitive, and actually has some sort of um, mathematical construction behind it. Um, so far, with a reasonable amount of success, I'm also looking at uh, first passage times of stochastic processes to barriers, which ties in with fundamental credit modeling, as I was talking about before, uh, but also has potential applications in, in option pricing and what have you. So there are a few basic things that are quite difficult to do in that area. So just working out the first passage time of a jump diffusion to a to, to a boundary, although it's quite a simple problem to write down, it's actually quite difficult to solve. And even if you take the jumps out and you just have something like a mean reverting diffusion, so an Ornstein-Ullenbeck process, the first passage time of that to a barrier is not a known 
problem that's been talked about in the literature for 40 years and people have picked around with it with varying degrees of success. Actually, there isn't a closed-form solution to it, and when you study it, you can see why there isn't a closed-form. But certain types of approximation can, can potentially work very well. So the sort of, uh, the sort of uh, avenue in which you might want to to employ that is if you're doing, say, some CVA calculation or something like that. CVA is an area in which you need to perform a large number of calculations very quickly because you're revaluing your portfolio at many points on many trajectories over time and, and uh, as markets evolve. So if you think that pricing an option is difficult, doing the CVA on it is going to be doubly difficult because it's a layer of optionality on, on top of it. So if you want to work out, uh, let's say it's a barrier option or some other kind of complex product, uh, you want to work out first passage time to a barrier which is a fairly key ingredient in a lot of financial problems to be able to do that approximately and quickly such that it behaves correctly in all the various limiting regimes where you would want it to behave is likely to be quite a useful uh, computational technique excellent well thank you very much richard uh, let's uh, let's remind uh, that your paper is going to be published in the july issue of risk and it will be obviously online on risk.net um Thank you very much for joining us and share your views on these topics. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye, everyone.